0: Tonight, as we continue our study of the book of Isaiah, we move into chapter 32. Chapter 32. And the bulk of chapter 32 is a description of a righteous kingdom that is coming. And the king, the righteous king, who will rule over that kingdom. And so that's the dominant theme throughout Isaiah chapter 32. And, and if you remember that that 's kind of a, a little bit of a contrast with the previous couple of chapters chapter thirty and thirty one were predominantly judgment god 's chastening hand, but then with a little bit of ray of light of of a coming hope chapter thirty two is almost kind of the opposite of that it's it 's mostly focused on the glorious kingdom with a little bit in the middle about judgment and mourning and the necessary preparations of repentance that come before that kingdom. And so chapter thirty two is much much more on the on the hopeful, encouraging coming kingdom side of Isaiah's prophecy. And so the characteristics of a righteous kingdom is the first part of this passage, verses one through eight the characteristics of a righteous kingdom. And the first couple of verses show us that one of the characteristics of a righteous kingdom is upright leadership. And it focuses on the king who will rule this righteous kingdom. So verse 1 says, See, a king will reign in righteousness and rulers will rule with justice. Now, there is some debate in the commentaries of whether this is talking about a near-term, just normal human king, say in the line of David, whether it be Hezekiah or maybe Josiah. But even if it is, I think that even a human king, even a righteous king such as Hezekiah or Josiah, can't completely fulfill this full picture of a righteous king. I think it can only be completely fulfilled in the Messiah, in Jesus, who is also in the line of David, a king who will follow in his line. And so this says a king will reign. It it kind of puts it into the future, doesn't it? A, A future tense. Because if you were to look at Israel's situation, when Isaiah is living and writing these prophecies, Israel was not a righteous kingdom, did not have a righteous king for a lot of their history. And most of Isaiah is judgment because of, the rebellion and the wickedness of Israel's kings. But he's pointing to a time of hope in the future in which after God judges, as we've seen in chapter 30 and 31, that there will come a time of hope, time of peace, time of righteousness. And in verse two, he says, each one will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert. And the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. And so, this is describing, by use of metaphor, some of the, the benefits and, the, and the, the good things that flow from a king who rules over his people with righteousness and justice. So, he uses the metaphor of refuge uh, or shelter from the wind. We can all identify with that image, can't we? We hear that tornado siren go off. And where do you want to be? You want to be in a place of shelter. You want to be in a basement. You want to be in a storm shelter. You want to be on the interior of your house. You want to be protected from that strong wind. A refuge from the storm. So protection from danger. Then he says also, uh, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. So I I see like in those four images, the first two, seem to be communicating the idea of protection of God's watch care guardianship over his people. And then the second two streams of water and then like a shadow of a great rock, I think points more to the idea of comfort and peace of prosperity that that the Lord will provide for his people in this coming kingdom. So not only will he protect them from the foes and the dangers, but he will also provide for them feed them. He'll give them streams of water. He'll give them shade in the sun. And so both protection and uh, prosperity is the result of this righteous king. So upright leadership is one of the marks of a righteous kingdom. Verses three through eight describe a complete transformation of society, a social rejuvenation. And this will come about through that rule. Of that righteous king. As he rules in righteousness, that righteousness will flow down to the whole of society and transform it. So, verse 3 says, Then the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed, and the ears of those who hear will listen. It's a little, it's a little strange, isn't it, when you read it? It's almost a paradox because it says, The eyes of those who see. Will no longer be closed. Well, if they see, then how do they need to see better? How do their eyes need to be opened? If they can already hear, then how is it that they will hear better? I think probably he's drawing on one of the, the passages in chapter 30, I believe it was, where he was talking about the blindness and the the spiritual darkness, the spiritual deafness of the people in which they thought they could see, but they couldn't. They thought they could hear, but they were actually deaf. They, their hearts were really closed to the word of God. But Isaiah now in this coming kingdom is looking forward to a time when God's people will be open to his word. Their eyes will be opened, their ears will be open, so they can see and hear not just what they think that they can see and hear, but in reality they will be able to see and hear. God will illuminate them. And open their hearts. Verse 4: the fearful heart will know and understand, and the stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. So, again, you can see transformation here, going from fear to calmness and understanding, going from a speech impediment, inability to speak, stammering to being able to be smooth in speech. Now, these are metaphors, right? These are these are images to, to communicate the transformation from that which is bad to that which is good. And that will happen through the rule of this righteous king. No longer will the fool be called noble, nor the scoundrel be highly respected. Wow, that's a great verse for our society, isn't it? Because we have a lot of people in our society that are looked up to and are followed and their voices are heard and they're really fools. They're really foolish in a biblical sense in a biblical wisdom sense. They're foolish. We have people in our society that are respected, but they're evil. They're scoundrels. And Isaiah is pointing, and that was true in Isaiah's day too. So it's not just true in our day. It was true in Isaiah's day as he's speaking to a rebellious and sinful Israelite people He's pointing them to a time that will be glorious and righteous. And you won't have people praised and followed who are evil and who are foolish. But those who should be in those positions of influence and those who should be in those positions of honor, that's who will be there. It will be a righteous, a just society, not one in which things are turned upside down which it was in Israel, and in many respects, we can see it in our own culture today, where things are turned upside down. And we honor that which should not be honored. We follow that which should not be followed. Verse 6, he says, For fools speak folly. Their hearts are bent on evil. They practice ungodliness and spread error concerning the Lord. The hungry they leave empty, and from the thirsty they withhold water. Now, when we talk about a fool... In Isaiah's sense, I think we're we're thinking of it in terms of Proverbs. I think Proverbs is probably a good background to think of someone who is wise versus someone who is foolish. In Proverbs, someone who is foolish is not someone who is intellectually lacking. Someone who is foolish in Proverbs is someone who is not fearing the Lord. Someone whose heart is turned away from the Lord and seeking his own way. And that's the fool in in Proverbs. And and that foolishness shows itself in many ways in Proverbs, whether it be laziness or lying or cheating people out of what is theirs. Here, foolishness displays itself in the oppression of the weak. So the fool is not necessarily someone who's unintelligent. The fool is someone who's rebellious against God. Like uh, Psalm 14.1 says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, or lives his life as if there is no God. So the fool in Isaiah, the fool in Proverbs, is someone who's turned their back on God. And Isaiah is specifically talking about the leaders of Israel, Judah, those people in positions of influence, whether it be the wealthy or in official positions of power, and they have misused those opportunities. And not only misused them, they have used them for their own gain and they've not taken care of the hungry or the thirsty. And isn't that the mark of what it means to be a, a true one who follows God, who fears God, who follows the Lord. Jesus says, if you see someone hungry and give him something to eat, if you see someone who's thirsty and give that person something to drink, that person will not lose his reward in heaven. So it's like basic compassion and mercy for the needs of other people is a mark of someone who fears God. And the people in Israelite society in Isaiah's day, they weren't displaying that fear of God. They were displaying foolishness toward God, and they were oppressing the poor and the weak. Scoundrels use wicked methods. They make up evil schemes to destroy the poor with lies, even when the plea of the needy is just. And so verse 7 is talking about the distortion of justice. And and we joke about lawyers in our society, don't we? Uh, We, you know, our society jokes about lawyers and, and, you know, it's hard to even comprehend the idea of a faithful, honest lawyer, right, in our society. That's kind of the, the image that a lawyer has in our society. Unfortunately so, right, because a lawyer should be someone who is devoted to the law and devoted to advocating for the person that they represent in accordance with the law. And what this is talking about is, I think it's probably getting at those who are able to find loopholes and, you know, little manipulation here or there to to get what they want, even if it's at the expense of someone who is honestly harmed and treated unjustly, even according to the law. Their society. So, this is saying even when the plea of the needy is just, in other words, even when the verdict should go their way, they use their power, their manipulation, their scheming to make it go their way. It's a distortion of justice. And the point of this part right here in this chapter is when the righteous king rules, you won't have any of that. You won't have any of that distortion of justice. But the noble, Make noble plans, and by noble deeds they stand. That's the ideal picture of what a righteous society looks like. Not one in which those who are fools are called nobles, but a society in which those who are really noble are regarded as noble. Those who are just are regarded as just and looked up to you and followed in their example. That's that's the kind of kingdom that verses one through eight is describing when a righteous King rules and ultimately perfectly that will come in the rule of Jesus Christ. Won't it in the future? Even to our day, this was future to Isaiah's day. This is still future to our day. We're we're still waiting for the return, the coming of our King and that kingdom that comes down to earth and has this kind of a perfect rule, perfect righteousness, perfect justice. So, the the characteristics of a righteous kingdom. And then I mentioned at the beginning that there's a little pocket in the middle of this chapter of a reminder of the judgment and the the, the cleansing, purifying effect of that judgment in preparation for this righteous kingdom. And so that's where verse 9 comes in. So the second part of the passage is about judgment, mourning, or lament, and then the blessings that flow to God's people after that in the outpouring of his spirit. So verses 9 through 14 is prelude to the kingdom, judgment and mourning. So you have in preparation for this righteous kingdom to come, first there will be cleansing. There will be a purifying effect by the judgment that the Lord will bring, and there will be mourning, there will be lament, there will be repentance. But that cleansing is necessary in preparation for the kingdom that's coming. It's the idea of, even, though, even using the language of Paul in Romans chapter 8, it's the idea of a world that is in labor pains, about to give birth to a newborn baby. It's the idea of going through judgment and God's chastening hand, but for the purpose of new birth, of, of restoration. So verses 9 through 14 talk about that judgment and that mourning that is in preparation for the kingdom. He says, You women who are so complacent, rise up and listen to me. You daughters who feel secure, hear what I have to say. Now, Isaiah addresses these these women in Judah. And probably a good way to understand this is that that he probably is thinking of a particular group of people in this, in Israelite society, but that he's also using them as, as an example, if you will, that represents the larger society. So it's not just this group that has issues and that are going to be judged. It's the whole society of, of Jerusalem of Judah that is going to receive the judging hand of God and receive the mourning and the lament that goes with that, but he's he's calling out specifically these these women. He says, "You're complacent. You're you're apathetic. Listen, pay attention to what I have to say." And 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 the thing about it is they were they were content in their position. He says, "You're complacent, but you feel secure." And a lot of times in our own selfishness and our own pride, we can feel that sense of security based on our own strength. Can't we? I think even Jesus points to this when people will feel that sense of peace and security right before the coming of the judgment. He says, Jesus said, you know, when the son of man comes, people are going to be eating and drinking and giving in marriage. And the coming of the son of man is going to catch them off guard. They thought everything was fine. Or like in Daniel, I think it's chapter 5, where you have Belshazzar, the king, and he's holding a feast, he's holding a party, while the Persians are surrounding Jerusalem, or I'm sorry, Babylon. So the Persian army has come and surrounded Babylon. His kingdom is going to fall that very night, and he's holding a party. It's the idea of we feel secure, we feel safe, but yet there is danger right around the corner, and they're oblivious to it. So he's calling out these women. You feel secure, but you become complacent. You become unaware of what's really happening. In little more than a year, you who feel secure will tremble. The grape harvest will fail, and the harvest of fruit will not come. So here he is, because he puts a time frame on it, he is probably looking to something here very near in the future, probably having to do with the Assyrians, the Assyrians and and their military might coming down to surround Jerusalem and and put their, try to attack and try to seize Jerusalem. This is probably what he's referring to. Tremble, you complacent women. Shudder, you daughters who feel secure. Strip off your fine clothes and wrap yourself in rags. And, And the idea with that is to... Stop seeing yourself as rich and proud and move to a position of humility and lament. Stop trusting in yourself and in your position, where, but where you need to be is in mourning over your sin, lamenting over your condition. And that's the idea of, of rags, of going into humility. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vines, that are about to be taken away. And for the land of my people, a land overgrown with thorns and briars. Yes, mourn for all houses of merriment and for this city of revelry. I think it was, and my memory might fail me. I think it wasn't Isaiah five where he used the illustration of a vineyard and Israel is that vineyard. And because of their rebellion, their rejection God was going to let that vineyard go. And into that vineyard were going to come thorns and briars and thistles. And that could be what he's referring to here is is because of their rebellion, God is going to take away, in a sense, his hand of protection and allow the Assyrians to invade the vineyard, if you will. And he says, mourn over the loss that is coming. Mourn for all the houses of merriment and for the city of revelry. Again, the idea of being comfortable, being in joy, being content, being feeling secure in their wealth and in their, in their position. But he says, no, you need to be mourning. You need to be in lament because of what's coming. The fortress will be abandoned, the noisy city deserted. Citadel and watchtower will become a wasteland forever. The delight of donkeys, a pasture for flocks. And so it's, it's just an image of barrenness, the complete opposite of fruitfulness. And so you have this, I think it was back in verse 11, he talks about beecher breast because of the, the loss of the, the vine, the vineyards. It's, it's because it's going to be overgrown and it's going to become a waste, a wasteland. And the idea of that is it's an image of judgment of the coming Assyrian army. So mourning, lament, because of the judgment that's coming. But then, like Isaiah often does, it's like he makes a real quick corner turn. And if you're not careful, you get whiplash (laughs) trying to read Isaiah because he goes from, here's a righteous kingdom, but judgment's coming. And then verse 15, and now the outpouring of the Spirit of the Lord it's, it's, it's quick, back and forth, these, these images. And so you have in the last part of the chapter, the outpouring of God's spirit, which, which seems to be God is judging his people. He's chastening them, but for the purpose of purifying them and cleansing them for the future kingdom that is to come, where he will outpour his spirit. So verse 15 says, till the spirit is poured on us from on high. And the desert becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field seems like a forest. So again, another complete reversal, isn't it? The barrenness and the emptiness of judgment replaced by the fruitfulness of God's blessing. The Lord's justice will dwell in the desert. His righteousness live in the fertile field. So we're kind of going back to the beginning of the chapter here, aren't we? Where he talked about a righteous king a just kingdom that was coming. And it says the Lord's justice is going to dwell in the desert. This barren land that has been ravished by judgment is now going to be filled with the Lord's righteousness and justice. The fruit of that righteousness will be peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. Notice a real confidence, not a fake one. Earlier, he, he called out the women of Jerusalem for their complacency and their sense of their place of security, but really it wasn't secure. And he was telling them, you should lament and mourn because of the judgment that's coming. But now in the future, this future glorious kingdom that's coming, he's pointing to a real security, a real confidence that can only come from the Lord, not from ourselves or what we can accomplish, but can only come from the Lord and what he does when he brings his spirit and his righteousness. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. Though hail flattens the forest and the city is leveled completely, how blessed you will be, sowing your seed by every stream and letting your cattle and donkeys range free. So, direct contrast with verse 14, wasn't it? Because verse 14 talked about donkeys roaming the wasteland but now it's talking about cattle and donkeys in a fertile land where God is blessing his people. And so it's a quick reversal from judgment and barrenness and emptiness to when the Lord comes and blesses his people after judgment, it will be peace and prosperity and fruitfulness. And that is what he calls them to look forward to. So yes, judgment is coming, because of their sin but God is not through with his people. He, he even though he judges them, he does not abandon them. And he is going to bring bring them through judgment, he will save a remnant and this remnant will go into this kingdom of righteousness. Now, how how does this work out in terms of the flow of history? Because you saw in this passage where Isaiah in terms at least in terms of the judgment seemed to be pointing to something that was relatively near, right? Uh, he says within a year, probably pointing to the Assyrian invasion and, and siege around Jerusalem. But now he's pointing to this righteous kingdom. Is he talking about immediately after Assyria retreats in, in defeat because the Lord has come to their rescue? Or is he talking about something far down the road? it's hard to tell from isaiah because isaiah doesn't leave any time gaps in there does he he doesn't he doesn't tell us okay this is this this part i'm talking about a year from now this part after that i'm talking about two years from now he doesn't do that for us and all we can do is we can try to interpret this in the context of isaiah but then also within the context of the whole flow of the bible and the whole flow of history so in the context of isaiah and in the context of history We do see the Assyrian army coming and surrounding Jerusalem, but then God driving them away miraculously and not allowing them to take Jerusalem. So there is blessing that follows, but it doesn't seem to be to the full extent of blessing that this is talking about. And so could it be that that time of blessing after the Assyrians are driven away, that that is a small type, if you will or a prefigurement of the ultimate kingdom that is to come. Almost in the same sense that Hezekiah or Josiah are like types or prefigurements of the greater king to come. We could could view the time of peace that follows the Assyrians being driven away as like a small microcosm type of the greater blessings and perfect righteousness that will come in the eternal kingdom of the Lord. And that's one way of seeing it. And because and, and maybe it's even such that Isaiah as in receiving these visions, he's he's not receiving these visions with dates on the calendar attached to them either. You know, unless the Lord tells him this is going to happen within a year, he's just he's just relaying the visions, isn't he? As as the Lord reveals them to him. And so even from Isaiah's perspective, he doesn't know how all of this is going to unfold. And so we have to, I think I mentioned this toward the beginning of our study of Isaiah, that, that one of the ways of reading the prophets and, and keeping this in mind is that sometimes the prophets, from their perspective, they would look out and they would see events like, like mountain peaks on the horizon. But they can see those mountain peaks, those events But from their perspective, they look real close to each other. But in actuality, if you were to travel over to that first mountain peak and then look to the second mountain peak, there's a huge gap of distance in between them. And so Isaiah, from his perspective, can't necessarily see all of those gaps in the fulfillment of of these events. He's just relaying them as God is revealing them to, to him. And so, but he's pointing to a a great time of peace, isn't he? A great time of of protection, of prosperity, of God's blessing his people. And that's the image that he wants them to see of of God. Yes, judging, but also redeeming, saving and blessing his people. And, And looking at that from a New Testament Christological perspective, we can see That God is redeeming a people through Christ, isn't He? God judged Jesus so that He could save us. So He's redeeming us through judgment. And then the future is exactly how Isaiah is describing it. It's a future of a righteous kingdom, isn't it? A righteous, glorious kingdom in which Christ will come and reign. A new heavens, a new earth. No more tears, no more crying. That's that's what we have to look forward to. And Christ has purchased that through his redemption, hasn't he? So be hopeful. Be hopeful in Christ because we have this kind of a kingdom to look forward to.